I just came back from a retreat where during an MDA ceremony, um, the big thing for me is I got to hold my dad's hand again. And, mm -hmm. um, and I know it sounds like, okay, that's, what's the big deal. The big deal is that I've, I've kind of always put him as the bad father figure just by every measurable, uh, equation. He's not the, yeah, he's not father of the year. He's not going to have a little trophy in the, uh, mm -hmm. the slippers. Um, but I do remember I had all these memories of him holding my hand when I was growing up. So as much as I wouldn't have, he, I, 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 I don't treat my children the way he treated, treats, treated me and my sister. Um, I know in his way, he was trying to show me he loved me to the best that he was capable of. And he was running from a bunch of demons. His father died and he was like 11 or 12 and he had a bunch of stuff. And then the alcoholism kind of stunts the uh, mm -hmm. maturing process. Um, but in his way, he was trying to show me he loved me. And I really felt it um, just a few weeks ago. And I haven't felt that in 20 years. Welcome back to Spotlight Media, the podcast. I am your host, David Flores, CEO of Spotlight Media. And joining me here today is Mr. Matt Zeman, co-founder of Happy and a psychedelic medicine advocate, collaborative leader, and entrepreneur. Matt, uh, great to see you again. How are you doing? David, I'm doing well. It's always good to, uh, good to talk with you. Yeah, it always is great to connect with you. And, uh, you know, it's been about a year and a half since we last connected. I was still living in Oregon at the time. I'm back in Vegas now. But uh, in that time, you've done some things. Uh, you went out, wrote a book, uh, which we're going to talk about right here, Psychedelics. <laughs> oh, I see that. I see everyone. Sticky notes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it was definitely, definitely a great read. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, making me feel a little insecure here. You know, in the last year and a half, you go out, write a book. I don't know if I can uh, claim anything that exciting, but uh, great to I'm have you I'm not trying to lead a publicly traded company at the same time. So it gives me a little bit more time than you probably have, David. Uh, yeah, you're fortunate. Yeah, yeah. Consider yourself <laughs> lucky. <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, nonetheless, uh, we're here to talk about the book. Uh, and, uh, you know, as I've been telling you, you know, I mean, I found the book, you know, incredibly fascinating. And, you know, I know a lot of our viewers and listeners out there, you know, we've got some folks that are curious about psychedelics, um, you know, and rightfully so there's a lot, you know, going around about psychedelics right now in the media. Um, it seems like every week somebody's coming out sharing their story. Just a couple of weeks ago, it was Prince Harry of all people and, uh, for better or worse, sharing his story of, of his psychedelic experience and journey and, uh, somehow ended up uh, having a conversation with a toilet. So it was one of the more fascinating stories shared by, a notable public figure out there, but nonetheless, that creates curiosity for people out there in society. And so, you know, Psychedelics for Everyone, uh, which is a beginner's guide to these powerful medicines for anxiety, depression, addiction, PTSD, and expanding consciousness, uh, in my opinion, I think is a great starting point for anyone out there looking to explore psychedelics and wanting to find a good starting point. But as someone like myself that's been immersed in this space for a couple of years now, I also found it fascinating. And I think what stood out the most to me was 
the personal stories that you share and, you know, being able to be so open and transparent about sharing things that have happened to you. And we'll get into some of that in a bit, but I guess to tee up things here, you know, why don't you share a little bit about the inspiration behind writing the book and uh, what you hope uh, readers will come away from when reading psychedelics for everyone. Yeah. So Dave, I was lucky. I mean, I, I had friends who had hired a guide and I was like, Oh, well, if they hired a guide, this, this person needs absolutely knows what they're doing. So I'm totally going to be safe. But, uh, and, and I did get lucky. The guide was reasonable, but not as experienced as what, uh, what I've come to learn you really should expect when you're, or look for when you're going on a psychedelic experience. So when I finished that first psychedelic journey, it's like, oh my gosh, how do I know more? How do I get to learn more about this? And I found that either the literature I found was too complicated. It was written for people with a science background, which I did not have at that point, or it was kind of too woo-woo for lack of a better word. It was like all this esoteric stuff. I was like, I don't relate to that. So I wanted to create a book that wasn't too technical, wasn't too opinionated, wasn't too woo-woo that anybody could read. And at the same time, I had every chapter medically reviewed for accuracy and references included so that if you want to dive deep, you can you can read this, you can trust the information and the book, it was written with the idea of like, okay, I believe psychedelics are not, everybody needs to take a psychedelic, mm-hmm, I, mm-hmm. but that they're for everybody. They're good for society. So that I'm hoping that when people read this book, it's like, okay, this might help me. Okay. That's one, one way to read it. Oh, I could see how someone I love could benefit from this. That's another way to read it. And the third is, Hmm. I don't really know anybody, but I can understand why this is important and I will vote next time it matters. And that's a third way to read it. So um, that that's kind of my hope that this is spreading good information. It's fighting the 50 years of propaganda that we've all grown up with and uh, and people can make good decisions after reading this. Yeah, most definitely. I mean, and I think it's so important, you know, right now at this pivotal point in time where psychedelics really are starting to push their way into society uh, for people to be able to access reliable resources and uh, information out there. And I think, you know, again, Psychedelics for Everyone presents that opportunity for individuals and you saying that you've had it reviewed and everything. It just lends to the credibility that I think the book presents here. Uh, But, you know, again, I think what also helps here is, you know, you sort of set the table by sharing some personal stories, especially in the beginning. And that's kind of where I want to start here. You know, you share the story of uh, losing your mom uh, when she was 49, you were 22 at the time. And this is in the early chapter, uh, processing grief. And so I'm going to read a little bit here from it, you know, to, to help sort of set the table here for, for listeners and viewers out there to help give them a little bit of context here. But it says, when my mom died, it felt like a piece of my heart was ripped out of me. I could feel the emptiness. When we buried her, I wailed. I didn't know what it meant to wail before that day. That day I unleashed a primal scream into the world. That's a very powerful statement there. Um, It really got me as, you know, someone that lost my father at age 59. Mm. Uh, So I can certainly understand that. But, you know, it goes on here uh, to say that, you know, you put this part of you in, in terms of losing your mom into a drawer and went on living as the living do. And life was fine. And it's similar to what a lot of us do. 
And, uh, you know, later on, you said it would be several years later in one of your first psilocybin experiences and journeys that you would reconnect with your mom and sort of revisit these feelings and these emotions. So would you, you know, be kind enough to kind of share what that experience was like in terms of revisiting the death of your mom and that experience and the emotions that were tied to it? Yeah, I'm happy to. I'm sorry about uh, your experience losing your father. I mean, 59 is also way too young. Um, it is way too young. Way too young. At the time, when you're 20, when I was 22, I looked at 49 as really old. Now that I've crossed the 50 mark, it's like, <laughs> oh my gosh, that is not old at all. It's still young. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, and not really old, but it was older, I guess. Um, that first psilocybin experience, um, I truly felt my mom was there and that I could. I say in the book, I could pull a string, like I could feel her and pull her energy into me and then push that energy into my kids. And it was just became apparent that she's not gone. She's just in a different place. And that I am in many ways, a continuation of her. I can embody her feminine energy and take that forward. And that's okay. That's not something to be ashamed of. It's not, it's just, it's, it's more than okay. And that my kids are going to take all of our energy and move that forward. So we're all part of the same continuum. Um, coming to that realization was just so healing. I just, I went from, I miss my mom to, okay, I miss being with my mom physically, but she is, she's still here. And, um, and then that led to a whole bunch of realizations of like, oh my gosh, how much of my life have I done because I've been afraid of dying or I just assumed I was going to yeah. die young. Yeah. And how much, how many relationships have I not <clears throat> really allowed to develop because I didn't think they were going to be everlasting relationships. Um, huge, huge uh, epiphanies for me, just one after another, boom. Okay. I, I am not going to die young. And oh my gosh, I, 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 I am capable of loving way more deeply than I'm doing today. Um, and giving that love out freely, um, and not, uh, yeah, huge, huge, just, just incredibly different. And I, and I, and since that moment, I've been on this path, it's like, okay, I want to learn more about kind of the mechanics of how does this work? And I want to feel more, I want to not reserve my intimacy for, a bedroom. I want to, res I want to share an experience with many more people to, to broaden my definition of family from the nuclear family to all being kind of brothers and sisters and, um, radically, radically different. Have you, wait, so you've going through the experience you've gone through with your father. Have, have, did you have similar ideas or it, what, what was this experience like for you or how do psychedelics connect to your, your father? Yeah. So, you know, coincidentally, you know, leading up to, to his passing in uh, 2018. So, you know, to, to lay, you know, little groundwork here in some context, you know, my father was, uh, was an alcoholic, mm -hmm. um, heavy drug user, suffered from depression, suffered from anxiety and, um, you know, his health just completely deteriorated, um, you know, over the last, you know, few years of his life and he became just a shell of his former self. And so, it was a, it was a death that, you know, I was somewhat prepared for as much as I think, you know, anyone can prepare themselves, you know, for losing a parent. Um, 
But, you know, nonetheless, at that time, that's when I was first starting to discover psychedelics outside of recreational psychedelics and being used, you know, for, for parties or for concerts and things like that. But I was working in the cannabis space. And so, you know, I was coming across, um, you know, stories and articles related to psychedelics and psilocybin, uh, MDMA being used for PTSD and whatnot. And hearing these stories of people very similar to, you know, what I was witnessing with my father suffering from addiction or depression and actually finding relief. And, you know, it's, it's unfortunate, of course, that, you know, we didn't have the time to, you know, try to introduce psychedelic assisted therapy, you know, to my father. Um, yeah, be quite honest. I don't know how uh, receptive he would have been. You know, he was very stubborn in the sense that he didn't think he had a problem, even though his, his life was deteriorating and his health was deteriorating as a direct result of the alcohol that he continued to drink um, and partake in all the way up until his death. So, um, you know, all of that, obviously, you know, there's a lot of internal trauma, um, you know, growing up with an alcoholic father that I've, that I've had to internalize and I've dealt with. And, you know, shortly after his passing is when I first uh, had my psychedelic experience, my psychedelic journey, um, not in a medical setting or anything like that. It was out on a hike with some friends out in Southern California. And, yeah, I just remember sitting, you know, under a tree and the emotions were so raw, you know, of losing my father and the emotions were mostly anger. Like this could have been prevented. You could have, you could have prevented this. You didn't have to die. Like this didn't have to be this way. And that was the first sort of feeling that I started a process. And then that sort of transitioned, um, you know, into, into grief, into sadness, like, oh my God, you know, my, my dad, my, my one and only dad is gone. I'm never going to be able to talk to him again or see him. And so there was just this overwhelming sadness. And then it eventually transitioned into this understanding that, you know, he's no longer suffering, um, that I have no control over the decisions that he made in his life. And I have to let go of, acting like I had any control and just understanding that, you know, he's still with me and I, I still could feel him. And to this day, I still do. And a lot of what motivates me and keeps me going to this day is, you know, wanting to in some way live out a life that I know he wanted, that he aspired to live out, but his demons just would never get out of the way and let him do it. Um, so for me, it really was helping to process all of that and come to this understanding and finding peace in his passing, despite the years and years of trauma, you know, that, you know, myself, my brother, my mom were exposed to, which, you know, we can get into a little bit more later on, but that's more or less, you know, um, my experience, you know, my journey um, since then, there've been some more revelations and whatnot, but uh, that's, that, that's kind of, you know, I think the, the best overview of, you know, what I experienced with it. I mean, it's beautiful. The, the, the journey you've been on hard, beautiful. And it's, uh, yeah. it's, it's interesting. We talk about these, this technology, talking about psychedelics as a technology mm -hmm. that, um, in many ways it's hard to explain. And sometimes it's as simple as that. It's like, okay, I had this feeling about X, Y, Z situation or, or my father, the trauma he's caused. And through this, I was able to come to a different appreciation, a different understanding, um, kind of land differently than, than I might've without the technology. Yeah. Um, 
I know just, just things that are, that are resonating for me, Dave, and what you said, like my father is a tremendous alcoholic and mm-hmm. having that, uh, super smart provided, but, uh, but I lived in that, that variability of who am I going to experience at any given minute? And uh-huh. is this going to be nice dad or raging dad? Um, and trying to be the peacekeeper at an early age and being yeah. thrust kind of into that, uh, that adult role, um, early on those are that's hard hard stuff um it is yeah i mean that's that's exactly you know i mean that resonates with me on a very personal level you know we never knew you know when my father we would hear his his van pull up um you know at night and we never knew who was going to walk through the door was it going to be you know the dad walking through the door with a dozen donuts you know and, and in a good mood and you know asking you know how was your day Um, or was it going to be the dad that, you know, had been drinking and was just looking to pick a fight? You know, he was, he was never physically abusive. Um, but there was a lot of verbal and emotional abuse. And, you know, if you, if you caught him in one of his moods, um, he was there just to pick a fight. And I think that was him obviously dealing with his own trauma, um, which, you know, I don't want to get too ahead of ourselves, but, you know, it was one of the things that I really, really experienced in, you know, a a later on, uh, psychedelic journey of mine, you know, where I was almost like living through my dad and his experiences in his younger days. So, you know, he, he grew up and was born in Managua, Nicaragua, and was one of four children was the only boy. And I don't know to the extent of the relationship that existed between him and his father, only knowing that it was not great and that his father shipped him off, to live with a distant relative uh, here in the the United States outside of uh, Los Angeles in uh, 1979. And he went to live with uh, a distant aunt and that wouldn't even let him live in the house. He had to live in a shed outside. And these were stories that I kind of buried, but through this psychedelic journey, I was starting to recall because my dad just never shared a lot about himself. You know, he was very closed off in that sense. Um, but I had this vision of just being my dad in this, in this shed outside in the cold and feeling this loneliness of like, I'm in a foreign place. I don't know anybody. My family has essentially cast me off and just, it was really this moment of like understanding where that trauma came from and where it all really stemmed from. And it just allowed me to connect with my father in a way emotionally. And it's oddly enough, you know, this was after he passed away, but I, I, my strongest connection with him ever came through this psychedelic journey. So, um, you know, again, it's just, it, it lends to being able to see things in life and experience things that I think otherwise it's it's like, I always look at it like uh, tuning into a channel. You can only tune into this channel, you know, if if you're in in a psychedelic journey. Otherwise, it's almost impossible to, because there's just too much. It just, it shuts out all the background noise. You know, I, I don't know if that's, if that resonates with you or not and how specifically these psychedelic journeys work to create environments for us where we're able to again drown out the noise is that does that make sense is that 100 you know? makes sense and, and mm-hmm. i'll take it one step further i mean i think we're again at the risk of being too woo i think we're talking about intergenerational um healing that mm-hmm. someone in, in the family can say this stops here so i can i can say i can look at my parents and say 
they weren't perfect. They loved me the best that they knew how to do. They each had their experiences that they were bringing to, to me. And, um, and I want to heal for myself and I want to understand more of what they went through so that I cannot carry anything besides love for them. And then I want to teach that to the next generation. Yeah. Um, or pass that on. Um, but yeah, everything you're talking about are resonating. This last, um, I just came back from a retreat where during an MDA ceremony, um, the big thing for me is I got to hold my dad's hand again. And mm-hmm. um, and I know it sounds like okay, that's what's the big deal? The big deal is that I've I've kind of always put him as the bad father figure, just by every measurable uh equation he's not the he's not father of the year he's not gonna have a little trophy in the uh mm-hmm. the slippers um but i do remember i had all these memories of him holding my hand when i was growing up so as much as i wouldn't have he i i i, I don't treat my children the way he treated treats treated me and my sister um i know in his way he was trying to show me he loved me the best that he was capable of. And he was running from a bunch of demons. His father died when he was like 11 or 12. And he had a bunch of stuff. And then the alcoholism kind of stunts the uh, Mm -hmm. maturing process. Um, But in his way, he was trying to show me he loved me. And I really felt it um, just a few weeks ago. And I haven't felt that in 20 years. Yeah. That's beautiful. I mean, my, you know, one of the last things that, you know, that my father ever gave me, it was, I mean, he was very sick, but you know, it was Christmas. I came over to visit and he had a C's candy gift card. And I'm sure it's something that someone gave him and he didn't know what to do with, but you know, I know he probably felt bad that he didn't get me anything. And he gave me that. And, you know, I mean, obviously it was the thought that counts, um, but it's something that I kept with me in my wallet. And I, you know, I knew at the time he was just doing so bad that yeah, I knew he wasn't going to be a long, very, you know, be, be around for very much longer. Um, but it's something that I keep with me now, you know, and in the journeys that I've gone on, you know, I, I I've held it and, you know, it's just, it's something that for me, it's, it's just, I feel that connection with him and it's something that obviously has a lot of sentimental meaning for me, but, uh, it's also a symbol of the love that I know that he had for me, that maybe he was unable to demonstrate or communicate, um, so that's something again that uh, being able to process all of this um and make sense of it all i think is is what's more important than anything and i know our stories are not unique you know i mean not i've unusual. had the privilege of speaking with oh, well over 100 people in the last couple of years and they've shared their journeys and their experiences um which makes you wonder you know i mean why you know, why is it so difficult for us to access, you know, psychedelics and psychedelic therapy and and things like that. And so, um, yeah, I mean, and and I guess, you know, it's a good transition to, you know, talking a little bit about healing trauma, you know, we kind of already, you know, set the stage for that, but I know you share another very personal story of yours in, um, you know, a situation that happened when you were at a young age, um, where you were, exposed to inappropriate and intimate contact uh, with an extended family member uh, while you were going through puberty. Uh, And you go on to say that this extended family member was uh, more than a decade older than you. And that um, for years, you had guilt 
over this, um, which is is certainly understandable. Um, but you know, you came to the realization, understanding that the adult in those situations should be the ones to, you know, have the wherewithal to say, no, this is not right, this is wrong. But unfortunately, you know, there are many adults out there that just they don't process information like that. Uh, nonetheless, you reached a point finally where this individual actually came to you in a psychedelic experience, psychedelic journey. You want to share a little bit about that and, you know, being able to let go of that trauma. But I think this also lends to being able to forgive, because I think that that's something that stands out to me, too, is the, the ability to forgive, because until we forgive, we hold that resentment in us. And we don't understand that that resentment sometimes just rots us to the core uh, so I just, if you can share a little bit about that story and, you know, being able to let go and to forgive. So we all talk about, uh, intention when you go into it, preparing for a journey, you're going to create your intentions. Um, I can promise you my intention was not to revisit this situation. This is something that was tucked so deep away. Um, I really, I, besides my wife and my sister, I don't think I've told anybody about it. Um, and then when people would talk about this or talk about this type of behavior, like my ears would get red and I'd get a pit mm -hmm. in my stomach, but I just stayed quiet. Well, sure enough, on one of these, uh, psychedelic experiences, it's, uh, I was right there, right back in the situation, um, in the last situation between, uh, between me and her. And I was again, mortified. I was like, I don't want to be here. Um, I had a great, at this point I had kind of psychedelic practice mm -hmm. and I, and I'd been told over and over, okay, if you see something you don't like, you've got to lean into it. You got to ask, what are you here to teach me? Um, in this case, I was able to remove kind of the concept of shame, blame, and guilt and look at her and say, okay, wow. She was so, she was feeling so unloved. Her father had essentially abandoned her. She wasn't as, as smart or as talented or as pretty as her sibling. She, um, she was struggling with substance use challenges. Um, I think she was confused on her sexuality. She had a lot of things going on and she just wanted to be loved. And I don't have to condone the behavior to understand the humanity. And, uh, and I could do it. I, could, I got myself there. I'm like, okay. This was an awful decisions, awful choices, not the right execution, but I could, I could understand. Um, I wish it wasn't so, but I can understand. And as soon as, as soon as I got there in this journey, it's like it just went away. And now there isn't any embarrassment talking about it um, at all. And there's no ears getting red pits in the stomach. It's mm -hmm. just gone. And I just feel lighter for shedding that and not having this kind of what I'd consider a horrific secret that I'm carrying around. It just doesn't exist. So, um, yeah, super grateful. Something that, uh, I didn't even think to ask the medicine to show me a way through this. It just happened. And that I and it's just it, it it's another example of just how powerful this medicine is that it can mm -hmm. it can find the things that you don't want to talk about and be like, ah, you should probably look at this. Pull them to the surface. 
Yeah. And you, you mentioned feeling lighter. Um, that really stands out for me because that I, I, that's how I would describe it. You know, I had a, a friend, you know, asking me one time, you know, how do I feel after a psychedelic journey or experience? And I said, you know, it's kind of like if you put my entire body in a washing machine and you click heavy wash, you know, with bleach and, and as much Tide Pods in there as you can. And then you, you come out and you feel like all that dirt, all that residue just washing off you. And it just, it feels like you're an entirely new person and you've got a new perspective, but you feel lighter. Um, I know for me, I went years, um, even before my father passed away, I went years not wanting to talk about, you know, my situation uh, at home. I was very much ashamed, especially as a kid growing up. Uh, I was mortified to, you know, have any of my friends find out that my father was an alcoholic. Um, and I just never talked about it. And, you know, in fact, I found myself, I was uh, out in Arizona last Thursday to to catch a hockey game out there with one of my old buddies from from grade school. And, you know, we grew up together and, you know, I found myself talking about my dad to him in ways I had never talked about. And he looked at me and he was like, I hadn't, I didn't know that you were going through this as a kid. Like, I didn't know that you were exposed to all of that. And it's a conversation that I know that I would have never been comfortable enough to have like even four or five years ago, but here I find myself, I feel open. I feel free. Uh, and I think that's important. I mean, wouldn't, wouldn't you agree? So important. I mean, this, this kind of goes back to your, to your previous point of, of we, it's not just about psychedelic medicine that we can't have a reasonable discussion on. We don't talk in this culture. We don't really talk about trauma or mental health. Um, the same way we talk about physical illnesses, you have cancer. Oh, poor you, you break a leg. Oh, poor you, you have depression, you have anxiety, you have a substance use challenge. No, you've done something wrong. You've, you've, you eat too much. You've done something wrong. You're anorexic. You've done something wrong. It's not, mm-hmm. it's, it's, we just don't have normal conversations. And, and we, at least for me as a, in the way I was raised, trauma was something that happened to like war veterans or like people been horribly abused. That wasn't me. My life was normal um, because I didn't know the pieces that weren't normal. Nobody's said to me, oh, your father doesn't have to be an alcoholic. That, oh, not everybody's dad's an alcoholic. (laughs) It's just, it's a, I just didn't know. But I think the more of us that as much as talking about psychedelics is let's just talk about mental health. Let's talk about things that are things that hurt, things that help um, and normalize this conversation. That's a, I think it's a big step forward for all of us. Yeah, it is. I mean, these are things that yeah, I know at age 41, you know, I come from a generation, I think one of the last generations where it was not okay to talk about the fact that you were not okay. Mm-hmm. Um, you were, you were taught even by your parents, uh, to kind of keep those feelings private. Um, uh, and so I, I know for us, especially, you know, now grown men, um, you know, growing up the way we did being taught, you know, I, I don't know if this, this applies to you, but I know it applied for me. My father was very much a macho man type father and, uh, you know, men aren't supposed to cry. And again, you're not supposed to show emotion. Um, and that's just how I was raised. And so, you know, it obviously wasn't the best, uh, way to grow up as a child, 
But I kind of want to talk about that because, you know, I feel like now us in a situation, you know, I, I'm not a parent, but I know you are. Um, we're trying to not make the same mistakes. But I think now with things like psychedelics, we're also finding access to resources and tools that I like to call them that our parents certainly did not have access to. Uh, and these tools and resources are allowing us to kind of better understand our, our, ourselves now as adults. And I think you put it, you know, somewhere, somewhere in the book that, you know, as an adult, you don't know everything, you know, you look at adults as a kid and you think, oh, they've got it all figured out. You know, I, I remember looking at my parents who, you know, when they were my age and thinking, oh, they've got life figured out. They know, you know, who they are. Um, they've got the answers to everything. Um, and now realizing that it's not the case, you know, and, um, you know, even, even my mom now in her seventies, I know she's still trying to find herself and that's okay, but we're learning that that's okay. We're learning. It's okay to not have the answers to everything. And we're applying that knowledge, I think, to how we're raising our kids now. And so that's where I kind of want to take the conversation here. Um, because I know, uh, Cole, your, your son joined you on a psychedelic retreat. And I know that might, you know, come across as a bit controversial for, for some folks out there, but we'll make it very clear. Cole did not partake in any psychedelic substances, was there solely as an observer. But I think that's great because the conversation about how do we talk to our kids about psychedelics, let alone drugs, but let's talk about psychedelics. You know, it's not the same conversation that you would have 10, 15 years ago where all drugs were shoved under one umbrella and they're all bad. A crack mm -hmm. cocaine is just as bad as meth is just as bad as marijuana is just as bad as shrooms. There's no exceptions. Um, so you talk to me a little bit about how that conversation has evolved here and how you've applied it to your parenting of, of your children and specifically the decision to bring a child into a world that, you know, otherwise you may not bring them into in terms of exposing them to a psychedelic experience. Yeah, this it, it Really an interesting question, David. Um, so there's Cole knew that I was deeply involved in this. He, he saw I went back to school to get a master's in psychology and neuroscience, focused on and my my whole thesis or dissertation was on uh ketamine and, and mm -hmm. adult symptoms with uh, uh oral ketamine with adults with uh, anxiety. Um he has heard tons of conversations. And I was really shocked when he said he wanted to come to a psychedelic retreat. Um, and I was first shocked because it's like, oh, wow, he's asking to come to this. And the second is like, why haven't I offered? Um, when I when he asked, I said, well, do you want to do psychedelics? Is that why you're asking? He said, no, I just want to see what you're up to. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. Okay. So, so sure enough, we went out to this, uh, this experience and in the particular retreat that this one was is it's kind of two days of lecture and introspection followed by a a, a sacrament day okay. and during that day he helped the facilitators um he if somebody had to go to the bathroom he helped walk them he brought blankets he brought he refilling water bottles he was just kind of there to help and to be of service which is a uh, yeah, it was, it was an interesting role for him to assume. And he saw a number of people having a variety of experiences. And then at the end of it, this particular retreat, everybody kind of gathers in the living room and there's a fire. And I remember him, we were on this big beanbag chair and he's laying down. I'm kind of just stroking his hair and he's listening to men, uh, men and women, but adults share really personal stories and, um, and men crying and men saying to other men, I love you. 
Um, and that was beautiful. The other thing that happened during that experience is at one point I was on my journey and I opened my eyes. He was right there in front of me. Um, and I was like, wow. Um, and I was able to give him this huge hug. And during the hug, I could feel like our DNA was wrapping around each other. I could, I could just feel so connected to him. And I, and I ended up saying to him something to the effect of, um, you know, my, Cole, my parents both died when I was uh, super young and nobody gives, gives an instruction manual on how to be a parent. And I just need you to know that I'm doing the best that I can. I love you so very much. And uh, I just need you to know that. And that was, then we held each other a little bit longer. And then uh, he went on to go help other people. And I continued on my journey and it was just this beautiful moment. Um, yeah, that I, I, I'm, I so treasure that we had that experience. I'm, I'm glad that he saw the saw drugs being used in an intentional way, mm-hmm. lots of healing saw that men don't we, as adults we don't have it all figured out we don't know what we want to be when we grow up just because we're 50 or 60 or 70 um we don't know everything about relationships even if we've been married for 20 or 30 years um he got to see all that and at 16 i had no idea that that world existed so super grateful to have been able to share that with him yeah and i'm sure that's that's a moment that's going to stay with him for the rest of his life um you know, it's, it sounds just like a beautiful moment. There's no question about a beautiful experience. What's uh, in the time after? Um, yeah, I mean, is there still curiosity there from from Cole in, in terms of psychedelics? Uh, and then, you know, I mean, it brings up a great a great question as well. Um, you know, one that we we covered uh, on psychedelic spotlight recently, Sasha Hebert, who's our COO. Uh, she's she's a mother and a mother of a teenager and her child's at that age where they are also starting to ask about, you know, drugs and, you know, it, it's out there. And I mean, it, drugs were out there when I grew up and I, I, I feel like there's two approaches. You can, as a parent, you know, you can try to just give them the don't do drugs, drugs are bad conversation, or you can have the more open conversation that I think, you know, you presented. Um, but I mean, has Cole's, you know, I mean, do, do you notice that Cole's curiosity is, is, is grown since then? Have there been more questions, but, you know, do, do you feel that it's the questions are maybe presented in a way that now come from a context of sort of understanding and seeing drugs in a different light? I'm just curious to, to know what that experience has done in terms of how Cole views drugs. Yeah, I think so. I th- for as to the best of my knowledge, this is not a world that he has uh, entered into. This is, he's not partake in any of these substances, certainly his friends have. Um, I think he has respect for the power of the drug. Um, he, I mean, seen certainly what the range of effect can be from these medicines. I hear him having discussions with his friends. He's had friends talk to me about um, the importance of source and getting your drugs tested. Cause I mean, a bunch of these kids, yeah. they're buying a, they're essentially buying them off of Instagram. I know it's not literally Instagram. It's some local person advertising Instagram, but what is in that that they're taking? So that's always kind of my number one lecture point with these, uh, with youth is if you're, if you're going to do this, you need to afford the testing strips. You need to go make sure you know what you're taking because too much of what you're buying is sold as X and is Y. And that's when people die. And, um, and, and I'm coming from a point where they know I'm not anti-drug, I'm anti-people dying from drugs. 
So I think, I hope they hear me differently than they might hear somebody else with that. Not saying it to scare you. Just if you can afford, if you're going to do this, get them tested. Um, And then I also think um, they hear me when I'm saying, for me, having intentionality is, is, helps create a, a, a just a different container like why mm-hmm. are you doing drugs to begin with and again i don't judge so you're having anxiety you're having depression you're you're not sure of what you want to do in your life great all oh, that's fine let's explore that really deeply but turning off whether it's a six pack of beer or a, a, an illegal drug is just tuning out it's just trying to numb the pain it's not going to work and i hope they hear me with that as well um can it be fun sure but it's uh, it's not really getting at the root issues. And I think I'll, I'll say one more thing. That I think psychedelics have taught me, like I can, I can look at somebody now and without with absolute sincerity, be like, you're enough. You're good just as you are. You don't have to do anything. But what about college? What about this? You're going to be fine. You are fine. Not, not current, not past, future tense. You are fine. Mm-hmm. You've always been fine and you're going to be fine. So, so take the pressure off. It's not real. These are just stories and um, obligations that you're carrying that you don't have to carry. And you're beautiful. Yeah. So I, again, I don't know if that resonates or gets through. I, I think it does. It certainly does sometimes. Yeah, and I hope it does because uh, in this in this day and age that we live in, especially the day and age that the younger generation is growing up in, there's so much pressure um, from social media, uh, you know, I mean, you look at Instagram and it's, it's not a representation of how people on there really live their lives, but that's how people think that they live their lives. They look at these influencers and, and think that they wake up, you know, with, with pretty faces, you know, makeup on them and, you know, the rock hard six, six pack abs and all that. And that's, that's what they think they need to be. And so that creates, I think a lot of pressure, um, on, on the youth here today. Uh, and so my hope, and I'm curious, you know, as we evolve here as a society, um, you know, and as psychedelics start to slowly make their way more into society in an acceptable manner, uh, we'll get into accessibility in just a moment, but I mean, how important is this, uh, you know, being able to introduce psychedelics to, to folks out there who, again, are living with this pressure of, life, just needing to be a certain person, you know, whether it's personally or professionally. Um, I mean, really just being able to, like you said, understand that you are enough. I mean, that's such a hard thing to get across to people, but I feel like it's so necessary. So I don't know. I mean, amongst the many different things out there that psychedelics can help in terms of making people better and and helping them live better lives. What is your outlook on that? You know, what is your outlook in terms of helping this next generation that's coming up that may have access to psychedelics in ways that we simply didn't? Yeah. So I I think as a culture, we're off. We are, um, we are a very accumulation materialistic culture. Um, there's a lot about, uh, scarcity versus abundance. This is mine, not yours. And there's no room for us both to have it. It's a, it's a, there's a lot with our culture that's challenging. And I think what psychedelics can do is help people realize that, uh, uh-uh, you don't have to play that game. There is plenty for everyone. 
Um, and, and arguably what's kind of interesting is, I don't know. I don't, I think the rules are being rewritten. We're watching the rules being rewritten. How, mm-hmm. you know, what houses cost in, in Vegas or in many cities, you can't, you just can't, they're, they're not going to be able to compete for many, 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 many years if they try to play the same game that we played. No. Um, so they've got to rewrite the rules. Um, now, does that look like van life? Maybe. Does it look like some type of other type of cooperative communities? Maybe. I don't know. But but the reality is we don't need all this stuff. We don't need to work two incomes, 60 hours each to be able to live in this particular neighborhood and send our kids to this private school so that they have the chance to get into this college, so they have the chance to get that job that they don't really want anyhow. Um, and I think, I'm hoping that's becoming more and more apparent and that the, that when you unlock this technology, it's like, oh, it's not, what is the source of my anxiety? What is the source of my depression? It's not a biochemical. I'm not broken. Mm-hmm. The source is all this other stuff. All this other things of I'm not enough. I'm not enough for my parents. I'm not worthy of their love. I'm not enough for my school. I'm not enough for this teacher. I'm not enough for, and on. And if you can remove all that, life just looks different. Yeah. I mean, can you imagine if we had access to some of this, you know, earlier on in our life? I mean, I think about it sometimes, uh, all of the you know, the, the, the trauma and just the, the depression and just the anxiety that I probably would have been able to maybe in some instances avoid, I don't think you can avoid all of it, but, um, you know, I mean, I know I was, you know, young age, very insecure. Um, a lot of that had to do with the family that I came out of. Um, but now just looking back and, a lot of it always stemmed from, I, I never felt like I was enough. I never felt like I was living up to the standard that I needed to live up to. And now in sort of being able to break all of that down and come to a more, you know, a clear understanding of it all, I realized that I am enough and that's allowed me to enhance my relationships with, with the people around me, um, the people that I work with, the people that I work for, it's just in many ways made me a much better human being and much better person. And it's just, you know, again, I don't know if you ever think about, you know, where your life could be, had you discovered this, uh, discovered psychedelics a lot sooner and how different things could have been. But I, I think about it a lot. Yeah. And maybe, but I also think, and I think David, you had the perfect life to get to where you are right this moment that you're taking all of these, for whatever reason, you ha- you created and experienced all these different situations that helps frame your perspective that then now you're sharing and all the different things you're doing through your, through your, through your work, through your, the, the messaging you're sending out there through your relationships. Um, I'm, I'm grateful you had the life you've had to get you here. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's one of those things that would you have scripted it that way? No, but you're here and you're beautiful and you're enough and you're loving and you're loved. And it's, and, and people need to hear your stories for, for the yeah. journey. So you're, you're carrying it forward. 
Yeah, that's the way I like to, to try to look at it. And, uh, you know, spreading that message, I think is important. And, you know, the other thing that, that I give a lot of thought to is accessibility. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I, I think for us, you know, just being where, where we are, um, we are fortunate enough in some ways to be able to have access to these medicines and to these treatments, uh, retreats, and, you know, whether it's ketamine clinics, what, what have you. Uh, unfortunately, you know, there's a lot of individuals out there that, you know, live at or below the poverty line, and they're not in a place to be able to explore these medicines and these treatments, um, at least not yet. And, you know, it's something that, that I think about a lot only because of the fact that, you know, growing up, you know, we grew up just at that poverty line, you know, we, we never really dipped below it, but we had some very, very tough times out there. Uh, you know, with my mom having to to support the family of four, given the fact that, you know, my dad could never really hold a job. So we struggled. And so I think about it. And, you know, I think I mentioned this at, you know, earlier in the conversation that it's unfortunate that you know, we were never able to introduce my father to psychedelics earlier in his life, you know, because I do think it could have possibly changed the course of of what happened with him. But nonetheless, I look back and I think, you know, 15, 20, 25 years ago, would we have been able to afford it, especially in insurance companies, they, they don't cover it? And the answer to that question is no. Um, so unless we were buying, you know, mushrooms or, you know, LSD from someone behind a 7-Eleven um, and expecting him to do it at home and expecting him to understand intention and integration and all these things that go into helping leverage the use of psychedelics to the benefit of overcoming trauma, it was never going to happen. And so that's important because it's not just the psychedelics. It is the, the intention, it's the integration, it's the environments, all of that, but it's not cheap. And it's not something that, you know, someone again can just go, you know, on the street corner buy and expect, Oh, okay, well, I'm suffering from depression. I'm going to go buy, you know, a couple of bags of mushrooms from, from, you know, my neighbor, and I'm going to expect to go home, take it. I'm, I'm going to be okay. Not the case. So I don't know, what's your thought on accessibility um, as we lay the groundwork here for the psychedelic space? I hate using the word industry, but it, it's going to inevitably become an industry. Um, but one that I think we have an opportunity to shape in a way that those that would ordinarily get left behind maybe won't get left behind this time. So just curious to, to hear your thoughts on all that. Yeah, I mean, accessibility is is certainly high up in the things I think about. Um I want to divide this answer into two parts. Part one is going to be on legal psychedelics. Part two is on illegal psychedelics. On the legal side, we're talking about ketamine. In America, you're looking at $450 to $1,000 per session if you're going to go into a clinic. Mm -hmm. $1,000 to $1,200 for six sessions if you're using a telehealth company. Um, pretty much you can get nasal ketamine, uh, uh, S-ketamine, uh, sometimes with insurance, but for the most part, it's a pain in the ass and uh, people are paying out of pocket. So even if we say, okay, $1,200 telehealth, that's the way to go. That's still a lot of money. It's $1,200. It's a lot, a lot of money. Now, is it an everyday drug? No. Is it something that you can do potentially six times and, and not again? Maybe, or maybe once a month, once every two months, but it's still a lot of money. So, um, I'm hoping that with all of the data and these companies coming up, trying to aggregate the data, 
that insurance companies will quickly see how much less expensive it is for them to cover ketamine versus traditional talk therapy and antidepressants. And, um, and that'll shift. So that that's, we're hoping that happens. We can then move our way to MDMA and psilocybin. Again, it's going to be expensive um, and hard to get through legal methods. So then we get, we move into the underground world of retreats mm-hmm. and people can fly. Oh, I can go to Jamaica, Mexico, Costa Rica, Peru. Great. You're talking about ah, 3,500 to five grand a pop plus travel. It's expensive. It's legal there, but it's expensive. Underground retreats in America, typically I'd say 1,200 to 3,500 um, for kind of a two ceremony night experience is what I'm seeing. I don't know what you're seeing, David. Um, yeah. Expensive. What I will tell people who, who are listening to this, who are saying, I want to do a retreat and I just can't figure out how to afford to do it. I promise you, if you reach out to those retreat organizers, if you can figure out who's organizing a retreat and explain your financial situation, many of them will find a way for you to participate. Um, Absolutely. Does that help on, on mass scale? No, yeah. but it helps. It helps a little bit. Um, yeah, I just came up with an experience where there were four people of color. Actually, I came up, go back two experiences ago, and there was one person of color, and then he left. Why am I a unicorn? Why am I the only one here? I'm like, I don't know a lot of people of color. So you go get more and let's have some more experience retreats. And sure enough, then there's four. And I would imagine the next one, actually, I know that they're, they're going to, two of them are branching off and working with a different facilitator to create just a person of color retreat. And that's a whole different discussion of why that community, even if they have the income, feel like they have less accessibility to these, yeah. to these medicines. Uh, but that's a beautiful discussion um, because it can do tremendous healing regardless of skin color, regardless of race, regardless of of uh, sexual orientation um, and regardless of income level. So I'm, I'm optimistic that the more ways that these medicines are legal, the more ways people will find to get them to every walk of life. I agree. And I mean, what, what do you say to, you know, the, the folks out there, because I don't know if you've noticed this, but, you know, someone like myself that has spent time, you know, here in this developing market sector community, whatever, however we want to refer to it as the psychedelic space. It's a very clear line that's been drawn in the sand, at least from my perspective. On one side, you have folks that are very anti-capitalist, very anti-seeing this take any route where big pharma is going to be able to get their hands on psychedelics. Uh, And they've got fantastic arguments, um, you know, for that, you know, should companies be out there trying to trademark the way certain psychedelic medicines are administered and, and the environment in which they're they're administered. I mean, that's a very touchy subject right now, um, especially given the fact that, you know, the, these medicines and, and these substances date back to indigenous communities uh, centuries ago. And these indigenous communities are in some instances being left out of the potential profit center, if you will, that's going to become the psychedelic space. And, you know, I can certainly say that that, I don't think that that's right. I don't agree with that. But on the other side of it, like we were talking about, well, if we want mass accessibility, just given the way uh, society is structured, 
insurance companies are going to have to get behind this. Um, not everyone has insurance, but a good portion of society does. And I think enough to really flood the market, you know, with psychedelic assisted healing and more specifically get it in front of people that can benefit it from the most, regardless of income status. So what do you say to, to, to folks out there? I'm sure you've come across them that, that say, no, I absolutely do not want to see psychedelics go down the big pharma route. Let's keep this underground. Let's keep this sacred to indigenous communities. Do, do you do you say anything? I mean, I mean, what is your thought on that? There's so much to unpack in what you just said. I know. That, that was like, that was, uh, there's no way to unpack it all. Unfortunately. So let, let yeah. me try to do, let me try to address just various points. So we talk about indigenous cultures. I think it's important for people to understand that psychedelics have been used, um, psilocybin, mushrooms, grow in every continent except mm. Antarctica. That indigenous cultures, we all think immediately, oh, Native Americans or um, Central and South America, but uh, but Scandinavia, African, European, um, the witches that were burned back in the days, those are oftentimes using psychedelics. So we all, most of us have lineages that trace back to indigenous groups or of using psychedelic medicine. It's not just... Um, Central South American, Native American, just at least that that's my take on, on, on this, the, um, when we talk about the medical model versus the decriminalization model, there are two different philosophies and how do we get more people access to psychedelics? And I can see both arguments. I think what Rick Doblin and Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies have done is like, we're going to get MDMA to be legal, FDA approved, consistently um, delivered, and we're going to do it under a public benefit corporation model. How beautiful. Good for them. Um, other groups are saying, we're going to patent unique either compounds or compound delivery methods or... Um, to guarantee a consistent, clean, uh, that we know that A equals A equals A. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I get that. And when we're talking about the way our culture is built around insurance and how medicine is delivered, that's all it's needed. We then switch though away from the medical mentality, which is just hard because you'd say, okay, well, let's, if we don't accept that we're broken and we don't accept that, um, that we need fixing, that we have, or that we've given up our authority to someone else, to the doctors, to the people who know more. Well, then the decriminalization people step in and they're like, wait, whoa, whoa, these are, you can't make plants illegal. What's wrong with you people? This is just, just not okay. And I can see what they're trying to say. So I love what I'm seeing kind of the, like what Colorado did. We're going to decriminalize five psychedelics and we're going to create a legalized framework for, for a medical model in the state. That seems to be a pretty reasonable compromise. If again, I, I know there's sometimes not a lot of room for compromise there, but uh, that seems to be reasonable. And then I, I think the third leg of the stool that's not often talked about is the religious movement. There's a number of us who believe that when we take a psychedelic, it's a sacrament. It's a communion with God. It is a, uh, it's a connection to a higher power, whatever that is to you. And there's the whole religious uh, freedom restoration act argument, or that these are that that's another way to access it. And the question then becomes for us as a culture: it's like, well, is that it's not really medicine? 
and they're not really trying to decriminalize it. They're trying to use it for religious purposes. Is that recreational? What is that? I think it's religious. Um, but that's a whole nother, it's just another path to go down. And I think all three have their, have their points, have their places, um, and are different ways to access the medicine. So long, long, long answer short, mm-hmm. I think any way that people that gives people more access to psychedelics is a start in the right direction and that we can keep fine tuning as different methods come out there. Um, and then I do hope that the market itself protects frivolous patents from being able to happen on, yeah. oh, we're going to do this in a comfy chair in a living room setting. Nonsense like that just doesn't get doesn't get patented. But spending a bunch of money, $100 million on a, on a compound to deliver that consistently, yeah, they probably have the right to get that patented and should get it patented. And that can benefit all of us. Yeah, I agree. And thank you for clarifying it. Patents. Uh, I use the word trademark and that's only because it's at the top of my head right now because we're in the process of trademarking something. But yes, patents is the correct uh, term to use there. And you know, I'm not going to name the company that has you know, been <laughs> out there um, trying to patent almost everything that they can get their hands on. But you know, it has uh, it has ruffled a lot of feathers sure. out there, and rightfully so. Um, and again, I, I do hope that that does get scaled back, and that there are some protections put into place here, as you know, as this space and as this industry continues to materialize and come together. Um, because again, I, I I'm one that yes, I want mass accessibility. Um, my own personal belief is yes, I think in order for that to happen, there's going to have to be this, this, you know, medical clinical component to it where pharma is going to have to be involved, but I'm not one to trample over the rights of anyone and everyone out there. So it's, it's a thin line that needs to be walked. Um, and it can be an and it can be an, it can be no reason why legislation can't promote the and. Do both. If you want to go pick mushrooms, you should be allowed to pick mushrooms. And if you want to go in and be treated because you're subscribing to that model, yeah, then you probably want to know that this particular three grams of psilocybin is exactly what you think it is. Yeah. Same strain, same consistency. Boom, boom, boom. That's, yeah. Yeah. And and the decision, yeah, I agree. And the decision as to, you know, where... I feel comfortable partaking in my sacrament, in in my journey, in my experience, I think should be up to me at the end of the day, it should be up to the people. You know, if I choose to want to do this, you know, in the comfort of my own home, uh, whether it's alone or whether it's surrounded by friends or family, uh, I should have that option versus, you know, only having the option to do it at a clinic or in a clinical setting, um, you know, and I hope that those options stay available because I think it's important because I think trying to force psychedelics, given the complexities of them into a certain box, I think is just going to dilute, if it will, mm-hmm. you know, I think the the potency or the, the capabilities, I guess I, you can say. So I just hope it doesn't go down that route. I love uh, Carl Hart's book, Drug Use for Growing Ups. Uh, well, it covers a lot of these topics. Um, and if you haven't read it or listeners haven't read it, it's such a such a great, it's such a wealth of information on uh, on on drugs and kind of how we got to this point as a society. Um, it's a great, great read if you haven't read it. Yeah, so I will definitely, I'll definitely have to check that out. Um, 
because yeah, I mean, it's, it's a topic that I just, I, I want to go down the rabbit hole even more. It's, there's a lot to explore here. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, with that, uh, before we wrap up, um, you know, talk, I want to talk a little bit about, uh, your current project that, that you're getting prepared to launch here. It's uh, happy. Uh, if, if you want to share, you know, with our listeners and our viewers out there a little bit about what, uh, what happy is and, uh, what we can expect coming soon here with it. Yeah, probably by the time this goes live, Happy will be live. So it's happy with two Ys.me. <clears throat> it's run. Uh, the CEO is a gentleman named Wolf Schlagman, who's built a couple other telehealth companies. And we're, we're, we feel like we're fighting the unhappiness epidemic using the only legalized psychedelic medicine that's out there, which is ketamine. And uh, again, to, to accessibility, we're trying to keep our costs as low as possible by building systems and technology that helps create a a consistent experience. We give digital therapeutics or activities every day um, that people can take after the uh, after the ketamine, and we connect our members with a network of doctors and prescribing clinicians, as well as a network of guides to help prepare them and integrate the experience. So we think it's a uh, yeah, it's gonna be a powerful, hopefully a powerful tool. Um, we've got beautiful uh, music and meditations and kind of a ceremonial. Um, ceremony components to it that we think is kind of unique in the, uh, in the space. And we're again, trying to figure out how do we get this into, uh, into the hands of people who need it. Oh, sounds exciting. And I, I hope we have an opportunity to have you back on to talk a little bit more about it in the near future. But uh, in the meantime, uh, it's psychedelics for everyone. Uh, I highly, highly, highly recommend it. Um, and uh it, yeah, it, you can get it on Amazon. Uh, I think it's available also on uh, Apple, Audible, and uh, if you're old school, um, Barnes and Noble. I don't know if there you go. <laughs> they so still have them. yeah, they do. They do. Not as many. I, I remember in the '90s, those were the those were the spit, the place to to hang out. <laughs> that was yes. a spot to go. Now they're harder to find. Yeah, yeah, but nonetheless, Matt, uh, congratulations um, on the book. Fantastic read. I, I really appreciated it, and I really appreciate the stories that you shared, both within the book and here today. It's always great to have such a, a wonderful conversation, an open conversation. Um, so, thank you so much again for everything, David. I appreciate you having me on. I appreciate you taking the time to actually read the book to, uh, and, and what you shared today. I mean, you you shared quite a lot, and I. I that that means a lot to me. I really appreciate that. Yeah, it's 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 honestly one of the first times that I've done it. Um, you know, uh, on a podcast here that we're going to publish, uh, I felt that it was time to do it. And you know, we you know we've developed a rapport here. I felt comfortable enough to to share these stories here with you. So I, again, thank you for creating an environment that made me feel comfortable um, to be able to open up here. That means a lot. I'm grateful yeah. for what you do. Thank you, David. Thank you, Matt. And we'll talk soon. Sounds good. Thank you.